Pulse Audio Podcast Network. Good morning, Herstory Heroes, or afternoon, or evening, or whenever you're listening to us. This is Whining About Herstory, a podcast where two longtime gal pals chat about women from history you maybe haven't heard of and drink wine while doing it, or mimosas in this case, because it's really early in the morning. It I'm Kelly. nine fucking a.m. and I'm already, like, I'm actually excited. Right, and I'm super awake. But I'm also kind of done. But I'm also kind of Emily. So thank you for joining us on this uncharacteristically early morning for us. I don't think we've ever recorded this early. No, I think we recorded once in the morning, but it was like 11. Yeah, like, <laughs> so. I mean, and even that was morning. a little much. So we're trying to get high energy and we're making this a special time because we are drinking mimosas. Woo-hoo. So we just got some sparkling Welch's wine and some, is that even wine or is that just no. sparkling cider? Sparkling cider. I was okay. trying to tell you that last night. I was like, I don't have sparkling wine. See, I thought you meant you didn't have champagne. And I was like, no one makes mimosas with real champagne. I'm like, no, I don't have fermented grape juice i have regular grape juice i was wondering what you i didn't understand that i was like it's okay it's, what? i have to drive in a little while yeah i so it's too early to get uh, you guys sloppy. are gonna have to deal with that so this is this is our sober episode of right. whining about herstory uh less wine but still a good time so uh what are we choosing to today Women's History Month. It is Women's History Month. And this is actually a very special episode, and we're going to crack on into it. But first, cheers. Clink. Mm. I always forget how good mimosas slash sober mimosas are. And we are drinking out of our stunning whining about herstory glasses that Kelly so lovingly made. And if you follow us on social media, you'll see that we are doing a giveaway if you follow the rules of the post, you may get to win one of these glasses. And also, if you either up your Patreon donation or subscribe to our Patreon at the $5 or higher level, you get one of our old school logo stickers and one of our new school logo stickers. And the old school is limited edition. Yeah, those are gone. We're done. We're never going back. We're all going to erase it from our memories. (laughs) Emily tried and she did a pretty damn good job for a year and now we're done. (laughs) All right. Well, like I said, we are having a very, very, very special Women's History episode today. Yes, we are. And that ties into our Say Their Name. So our Say Their Name this week is Catherine J. Atwood. Hey, Catherine. I hope she, I kind of hope she listens, but I'm also really terrified that she's going (laughs) to be like, you did terribly. Like, what the fuck are you guys, how dare? dare you right. you know <laughs> i hope that's not it that's why we cover women who are dead so they can't judge us <laughs> right we've we've done a few that are alive but we're like they're probably not listening yeah yeah they're, they're too they're too cool for us but uh so Catherine is an amazing women's history writer particularly women in war and conflict and so she was kind enough kind enough to send us some of her books uh we got one book on women heroes and world war one 16 remarkable resistors soldiers spies and medics and then we got two books on world war two yep. so we have women of world war two and then women of 
women sorry women heroes of world war ii and then women heroes of world war ii the pacific theater and they're both 15 stories of resistance rescue sabotage and survival and these books are amazing and so Catherine wrote them to be for like uh like a young adult teen audience but as a 29 year old woman i really enjoyed this and quite frankly i'm sick of reading these dry complex articles about history where it's like you like every other sentence you have to google what the fuck is going on these stories are engaging they're well written and they're presented in a way where i follow it and i'm actually retaining it like i'm like Oh, I'd heard of the White Army in Russia, but I never like really knew right. what it was, and now I do. Yeah, these are particularly part of her what she calls her Women of Action series. I don't know if they're a series or what, but th- what what it says is Women of Action is a lively, accessible biography series that introduces young adults to women and girls of courage and conviction throughout the ages. So uh, we couldn't have Catherine on the show because scheduling is a nightmare, and. Uh, I don't know if she'd want to be, honestly. I, right. I, I feel like I don't know if she's ever scare listened. her. She'd be like, what the fuck is happening right now? Right? She's like, you guys are laughing about some really atrocious things. I'm putting her That's up. how we cope. I'm putting her up on a pedestal where she's like way too good for us. But uh, and she's she's trying to educate us. She's like, you guys need to be better. Right. <laughs> but no, she's really wonderful. She's been so sweet. And uh, so she was kind enough to send me some links to interviews she's done. So we can get a little bit of a background on her. So uh, so when asked about why many of her books focus on women, uh, she said, that's how I got started, but I've continued because I love to illuminate the stories of unsung he- heroes. There's a reason we have Women's History Month. Most history, if studied, is an overview sh- sort of way, deals with mainly the efforts of men. Men's stories are like the icebergs of history. Their contributions are all that is visible after a particular period of time has passed, but... There is so much more going on beneath the surface, so much history left behind. Women's experiences and perspectives fill in the blanks and make the picture complete. That's beautiful. That's like exactly why we do this. Yeah. And then uh, when asked why she writes for like a young adult teen audience, she said, as I began writing women heroes of world war ii the audience i kept in mind was my 12 year old self an un- undermotivated student who loved to read i was deliberately trying to reach young people who might not believe they like history but who might be enticed towards interest in a particular historical woman if the narrative was compelling to understand what made that woman tick one has to understand her setting and voila the reader is learning history and this is something i feel like we hear a lot like It's hard to engage young people in history. There's always the argument, it happened, it's over, we need to move on. But history is so important to understand what we're dealing with today and also to recognize red flags that we might be seeing today and make sure we don't repeat history's mistakes. And Catherine has written multiple of these books. One of her books is actually available in Spanish, which is amazing. That's cool. And she's uh, also um, edited a lot of other or like co-authored a lot of other um, female starring books as well. Yes. Yes. I think she has another book that's just about one woman. Um, I can't remember the title off of the top of my well, let's head. Let's see. In the back, it says she was editor of Codename code Pauline, Memoirs That's of a it. World War II Special Agent. And then she's also contributed to the Historian, War Literature and the Arts, 
and the collections of Des Plaines River Anthology and Holocaust Heroes Fierce Females. Oh my God. Holocaust Heroes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's so you, you can go check her out at katherineatwood.com. And that's K A T H R Y N A T W O O D. Or you can also follow her at Kate underscore Atwood7 on Instagram. And she's always posting amazing historical stuff mm-hmm. and everything about her books. And you definitely need to check her out. And yeah, also, it's fantastic. in one of the interviews, she was asked, like, who from the uh, Heroes of World War II book that she admired the most or whose story stuck out to her the most. Yeah. And she said, Sophie Scholl, who we covered. And I'm like, yes, girl. Right. Sophie was the best and then she died it was horrible check out uh check out the white rose episode if you want to hear her whole story and i'll just say this like Catherine really brings these women to life telling their stories like you feel like you're hearing it from them almost like she it's amazing Catherine. you're amazing and the way you write these women is amazing well and she makes it a point to uh make sure she presents the facts accurately but arranging them in a compelling narrative like right the woman I'm covering, I didn't follow this uh, style for my notes because uh, I did because otherwise I would straight up just be copying and pasting the book and reading I was it like, to you. <laughs> I was like, do not do that, Kelly. Do not do that. But do I might have. Job. I might have stolen some chunks, Catherine. But we're giving you credit. I definitely that counts, right? Quote Please don't things. sue us. <laughs> but no. So in my uh, in the story I covered. She starts out in an action sequence, oh, like nice. this really like they're in the trenches. I'm actually using the first down. paragraph of mine, not as my first paragraph, but like because she sets the scene so well. Yeah. And I, I definitely took quotes from the book. And uh, she also intersperses the chapters with quotes that are relevant to the story. Or like which history, I really like mine, like in the middle of mine, like just the story itself briefly mentions something. And then she has like a little like thing sectioned off that's like this is the history of that specific event oh that's yeah the the box it, yeah it, it's, it's like great. A, it's like a uh I was like, I think a reference note yeah. but instead of having to look up the reference you just get to read it right god it was great seriously like people Check writing out for adults books. need to get their shit together because this is so much better right anyway uh i am starting us off today and i am covering maria bachkotrova Ooh, I went Russian. I practiced Why? that. <laughs> I practiced it so hard. I listened to the pronunciation like a thousand times. So if I got it wrong, she was like saying in her sleep hard. last night. Yeah, Jared's like, "Who the fuck is Butchkastrova?" Right? <laughs> Do I need Do to, I be need to be worried? <laughs> <laughs> yes, because Maria is the best. Right. Anyway, uh, so like I said, I covered uh, women from World War One in that book. So World War One, or the Great War, as it was known before anyone could conceive that this kind of thing could happen twice, (laughs) is often overshadowed by World War Two. And look, I get it. Like, I personally love learning about World War Two. Even as a kid, it was absolutely fascinating. And it's insane in all of the best and worst ways. But World War One quickly and violently changed the world, thrusting the globe into the modern age, whether we liked it or not. Every aspect of life changed during and after the war, especially for women. World, yes. Did you did were you surprised I brought this back to women? Right. That's I like, was shocked. I know I had we never no idea do where that. this was going. 
World War One was met with a lot of enthusiasm, which I didn't know. Like, so I never read the introduction to books, but I read the introduction for Catherine's and I feel bad because I didn't. Well, I, I'm I'm being a little extra here, but it was it really just like laid out, hey, here's everything you kind of need to know for the concept of World War One, specifically viewing the women in the situation. And it was fascinating. Right. And I mean, we've covered a lot of World War Two, so I feel like we the you know we have a lot more groundwork for it versus yes. we have we've covered like one or two from world war one but definitely not many so i feel like probably reading the introduction in your case was a little more eye-opening whereas like, I'm like i feel like i have a decently solid although mine i did i did the pacific theater i probably should have read the introduction i was gonna say the pacific theater i feel like is territory we don't tread in no. very often we did um Elsie Ott, and she was stationed in India, but that yeah, wasn't super involved in the Pacific Theater. I don't know. Is and she in that book? I can't remember, because I know she has covered some of the women we've done. I think in her other book, she also covered Martha Gellhorn, yeah. who we've covered, and she's amazing. No, she is not in here. That's okay. I'd really like to learn more about her, like, almost sitcom patients that were stuck on that plane that she had to ca- take care of for. Right. One couldn't walk. One was blind. One was having a psychotic breakdown. Isn't this fun? Just throwing all these weird people together and let's see what happens. And a tiny flying metal box. Anyway, callbacks to previous episodes. So, yeah, World War I was met with a lot of enthusiasm. So the countries had all been kind of building up their own power and their own patriotism. And this was the opportunity for them to either further assert their power or gain gain more power. Right, exactly. And citizens swept up in national pride were eager to do their part for the war effort. This was like the Olympics of war. Everyone was really excited to just kind of get throw their there. hat in the ring and be like, yeah, we're the best. And now we get to prove it. Like, which blows my mind because at any hint of war today, I'm like, please, please, so no, Jesus Christ, no. So men and women eagerly signed up to serve in a variety of fields. Women participated in every aspect of the war overseas and at home. As Catherine writes in her book, quote, whether these women were doctors or nurses, factory workers or war protesters, soldiers or spies, reporters or relief workers, the way in which they proved themselves in the midst of the carnage and destruction of the First World War is remarkable, especially considering how most men and even many women of that time period placed little value on women's abilities outside of the home. Wow. Now so- I feel even worse that I didn't read my intro. I'm like, <laughs> That's like legit like good groundwork there and i'm just like nope didn't do that so all of these women had different motivations for their service and work national pride supporting loved ones who were already serving greater financial opportunities the chance to advance women's rights defending their country from invasion and literally anything else you can imagine everyone has their own reason for going to war right exactly i mean that's even it today like that's why some people want to go to war they have their own reasons but I'm still like, no, no war. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm not a fan. <laughs> so uh, while Catherine's book is full of incredible women who participated in different ways, today I am covering one woman in particular who jumped out at me, Maria Bachkatrova. And I think those are, I think I maybe only say her last name three times on yeah. purpose. <laughs> so when I think of women in World War One, I, I think of the nurses who worked in munitions, and the women who worked in munitions factories back home. That's kind of like my... 
what what comes to mind first. Right. And while women have been fighting in wars for ages, whether they were encouraged and allowed to or they had to go undercover and dress as men, uh, it's difficult to imagine women fighting alongside men in the trenches of World War I for me. Like, that's never what comes to mind. No. There were women who disguised themselves as men to join the ranks in many countries, and we'll never know the true number of women who served in battle as many went undiscovered. And, like, maybe we're even, like, killed and buried in a war zone and, like, that's it. Right, and you just never know. Yeah. However, Russia stands out for having the most recorded female soldiers. Nearly 1,000 Russian women were fighting alongside men before the Russian government started actively recruiting them. Part of this was because the majority of Russia's population were rural peasants who cared less about gender roles and more about survival. When you're putting your blood, sweat, and tears into work in the land so you can eat, you don't really care about who works the plow so long as someone does it. We talked a little bit about that with Martha Ripley. Like, yep. shit's got to get done and just someone needs to do it. I don't care if you have tits or a penis or what. Right. It's like, just get it done. This is the environment Martha Bachkatrova grew up in. She was born to a peasant family in July of 1889. Her father had fought as a sergeant in the Imperial Army as part of the Russo-Turkish War. Uh, Maria's childhood was full of abuse, and she was probably eager to get away from the family. Probably. And that may explain why, at 16 years old, Maria married some asshole and moved to Siberia, where they worked as laborers. Her so Catherine did name her husband's I no. No, this was extra information I got. I could find the name of her husband's and I refuse to use them because they're both pieces of shit. Okay. So the husband number one, some asshole. Some asshole proceeded to abuse Maria and she bravely left him. Good. However, this wasn't the end of her troubles. Maria found work as a servant, uh, but was coerced by her employers into working in their brothel, which Sounds like she was being sex trafficked to me. Like, I feel like that's how we would understand that situation in modern Yeah, that sounds like it. So her quote unquote employers moved Maria to Stratensic. Goddamn. uh, Where she met a different asshole. The two opened a butcher shop together. But in May of 1912, different asshole was arrested for larceny and exiled to Yakutsk. uh, And Maria followed him into exile. And they had to walk there. Yeah. There was no getting shipped actually, off. That's super common. There was just keep, just start walking. And You'll when get you there see eventually. the sign, <laughs> you can stop walking. There, things didn't get any better. Different asshole was arrested again and exiled to Amga, again on foot. And Maria followed. Different asshole began drinking and abused Maria. So long story short, Maria's life is fucking awful. Yeah. And I just want to wrap her in my arms and give her a hug and, like, we'll drink some wine and we'll, we'll set... take her away. We'll set some asshole and different assholes' houses on fire and it'll, it'll, it'll be, be great. great. We'll toast it'll marshmallows. Very cathartic. We'll toast marshmallows and make s'mores. So by the time World War I broke out in 1914, Maria was contemplating suicide. However, the war seemed to re-energize her and she became focused on serving her country. So... Instead of this, like, bleak existence she was facing down, she's like, no, I have a purpose now. Right. My purpose I'm, is to serve and my and country. And it's another way to get away. This is very true. She later recalled, quote, our soldiers were retreating in some places and advancing in others. I longed for wings to fly to their help. 
Initially, Maria tried to enlist in the reserves in her hometown, but she was told by the commander that it was illegal for women to fight on the front lines. But she could join the Red Cross or join a, like in another supportive auxiliary role. When she wouldn't be dissuaded, and this makes me think of Ludmila Pavlichenko a lot. Right. Except she, Maria didn't dump out a bunch of shooting awards on this guy's desk, but she did something even bigger. So when Maria wouldn't be dissuaded, the commander told her to appeal directly to the czar himself. And this is uh, Nicholas Romanov, yeah, who this like, Romanov. we should all be fucking familiar with in some capacity, whether you've studied him or you've just seen the movie Anastasia. We should all know who that is. Right. At least the last name should be like, oh, yes, yes. I know that last name. So uh, the commander actually helped Maria, who was illiterate, compose and send a telegram, which I'm like, good nice of for him. you, dude. He, he kind of reminds me of that, like, desk person who's like, well, you're not supposed to, but if There's you this do loophole. this, or I could do this, or if you say you have this. Um, so Tsar Nicholas Romanov responded with a thumbs up and grinning emoji, and thus Maria began training with the men of the 4th Company of the 25th Tomsk Reserve Battalion. Nice. Turns out, Maria was a natural marksman, which earned her the respect of her comrades. Nice. Her street head cannon, the key to her shooting accuracy, was picturing all of her abusers. She just headshot every fucking time. Right. I see you, some asshole. I see you, different asshole. I got this. Right. Like, just amazing. So while her comrades didn't really take issue with her gender, the officers weren't thrilled, but it's kind of hard to argue with the czar. <laughs> right. Like, maybe don't. And then later do. <laughs> Wait till the war's over. It wasn't long before Maria's unit was sent to the front in February of 1915. Maria served in the trenches with the men. Just a little insight into trench warfare. Soldiers were fighting for any gained ground, charging into what was called no man's land or the space between two uh, opposing trenches, which was littered with landmines and like they were constantly shooting off like cannons and gunfire and it was just like hell on earth and the consequences for not going quote over the top or like getting out of the trench and charging could be death by your own commanding officer and then there's also lice and rats and all right like, other trench sorts foot of and... it's it's a fucking nightmare trench warfare is terrible yeah so despite these awful conditions maria served bravely in the trenches for two years in the course of her service, Maria consistently acted valiantly under gunfire, uh, earned military honors, rank promotions, a leadership position over 11 men, and she had three stints in the hospital for combat injuries. Wow. So she's not just like hanging back and no, trying to No, she's like, fuck this. I got this. No, she is in the shit and she's like, let's do this. Woo, woo. Okay. Now, beyond being engaged in a world war... Things weren't great in Russia at this time. Long story short, very long story, very short. Tsar Nicholas wasn't doing a great job. 
And economic instability combined with social divisions and a bunch of other bad stuff eventually boiled over into the February Revolution of 1917. And this was actually like a bunch of revolutions that kind of combined. There was like an yeah. October one. There was a February one. Like they just named them by the months because it's like just it kept was happening. just kept happening. Yeah. Um, and so but the February Revolution of 1917 resulted in the czar abdicating the throne, which was like mind-blowing yeah. no one had ever done that and the romanovs i think served for hundreds Long of years time. while soldiers in the trenches had mixed feelings about this the shift to democracy caused many to lose motivation for the war like what the fuck are imagine. we even like right. we're not fighting for the czar like who are we fighting for like maybe i didn't even want to fight for the czar like I want to be my own person and live my own life. So, however, this only strengthened Maria's conviction. She felt that her duty to serve and protect their country was more important than ever, which I totally get that thinking, too. It's like, hey, our country is in flux and there's a bunch of stuff going on and there's a power vacuum. And like, we need to protect the country to make sure that we can survive right. and then be like independent hold something and stand on together. Our own. Yeah. Unfortunately for her, most of Maria's comrades didn't feel the same, and she had just about had enough of the military when she met Mikhail Rodzianko, uh, Mikhail, formerly an official under the Tsarist government, uh, was now working for the newly instated provisional government to combat poor morale in the military. So he's just kind of going around doing his thing. When he met the battle-scarred, highly decorated, bomb-ass bitch that was Maria, he saw her as the perfect propaganda tool. Oh, God. As he was bringing her to government meetings in the capital, Maria got her own idea. So he's kind of like touring around with her like, hey, look at this lady. She's a fucking badass. And she's a woman, which like makes her kind of a novelty and extra badass. Right. And like, look how proud of her country she is. Yeah. Be like her. Exactly. But Maria had a different idea for improving military morale amongst the men. Her idea was to form an all-female battalion with the goal of shaming Russia's men into fighting. Huzzah for weaponizing gender stereotypes! Yeah! I mean, if you have to. (laughs) And thus, the Women's Battalion of Death was born. And this is how I picked this woman, because she's listed in the book as Maria Bachkatrova hyphen the women's battalion of death i'm like you're like done that one done i'm i'm here i'm done this is great so maria mikhail began campaigning to recruit women for the women's battalion of death maria gave stirring speeches to encourage women to join quote men and women citizens our mother is perishing our mother is russia I want to help save her. I want women whose hearts are loyal, whose souls are pure, whose aims are high. With such women setting an example of self-sacrifice, you men will realize your duty in this grave hour. Women, do you know what I have called you here for? Do you realize clearly the task lying ahead of you? Do you know what war is? War! What is it good for? No, I'm kidding. Absolutely (laughs) nothing. Look into your hearts, examine your souls, and see if you can stand the great test. And this comes up throughout her story. She's like the best speech giver ever. Like she's the woman that stands up in the all is lost moment and rallies the troops in a movie. Like she is the best. So those chills you can feel from that amazing speech ran through 2,000 women who volunteered to join the Women's Battalion of Death. Even with that name, they're like, no, 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 
this is fine. Well, that's because it's their it's it's the enemy's death, not yes. their death. We hope. <laughs> so their reasons for joining were different. Some were trying to save their country, while others had lost everything in the war and felt that they had nothing to lose. Which reminded me of your uh, Maria, the fighting girlfriend. Because her, was it her husband was killed? Was killed. And she and sold she her shit and bought her tank because she's like, I have nothing she's to live like, for. I have nothing to live for. And so I might as well, you know, kill who killed him. Yeah. I'm going to kill Go as many Nazis as I can. Glory. Some had served as nurses in the war and were tired of seeing their countrymen die and were ready to fight back. I'm sick of seeing people die. I want to kill some people of my own. We're done here. I want to kill people that I don't have to treat. Yes. Training was serious business. Mario woke the troops up at 5 a.m. and they trained until 9 p.m. And this was every day for a month. Now, something that had made Maria such a success in the Imperial Army was that she embraced traditionally masculine behaviors and encouraged her battalion to do the same. Hmm. The women shaved their heads and Maria taught them to smoke, swear, and suppress any traditional femininity. <laughs> yeah. And if like any of the women were caught ogling or like giggling at male officers, they would be punished. Like, get the fuck out. We're not doing this. We're not here to flirt. We're here to fight. Right. Not all of the recruits took too kindly to Maria's strict style of command, especially with like this shift away from the czar and maybe more towards democracy. Everyone's like, I don't have to like be subservient to this kind of crazy, like this extreme treatment. Right. Which fair. And then like, but that's the military and maybe it's not for you, which is fine. It's totally not for me. Yeah, I wouldn't have done well. So her authoritarian style was not very popular. And it was so unpopular that of the 2,000 volunteers, only 300 made it through training. Like within the first few days, a ton of them were like, we're not doing this. This didn't bother Maria, though. She had 300 women who were ready to follow her into battle. And they were going to follow her orders. Like she had basically separated the wheat from the chaff. And she's like... I'd rather have 300 women who are going to fucking listen to me and be on board and all in this than 2,000 women where, like, I can't count on 90% of them. Right. I agree. But the Women's Battalion of Death had enemies, not just on the front, but from within Russia herself. The Bolsheviks, who had ousted the Tsar, uh, wanted to pull out of the war so that they could instigate their own civil war within Russia and seize government control. So, like... During World War One, Russia's fighting in World War One, but then there's also this like crazy political and turmoil going on. And I'm like, I can't imagine like living through that. It just no. be exhaust like I'm already exhausted with what I'm currently living through. Yeah, Good that God. ridiculous. So having a battalion of women to fight in the war and encourage men to fight didn't quite align with their goals. It wasn't on their vision board, you guys. Right. They were like, no, 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 no. Stop. <laughs> so the battalion was also harassed by male soldiers to the point where guards had to be posted at their training grounds to prevent violent confrontations, which, Jesus. let's be honest, no one is surprised by that. No. Despite these obstacles, the nation and the world were having a bit of a love affair with these patriotic gals. Allied forces praised the Women's Battalion of Death for their patriotism and their service. Maria was dubbed the Russian Joan of Arc. Nice. After a month of training, the Women's Battalion of Death got word that they were being sent to the front. Specifically, they were being sent to an area where the male soldiers were on the brink of mutiny to be part of this big push to gain German territory. 
To help motivate the yet-to-be battle-tested troops, Maria gave one of her trademark rousing speeches. Quote, Remember that you volunteered to set an example to the laggard of the army. I know that you are of the stuff to win glory. The country is watching for you to set an example for the entire front. No pressure. No pressure. We good. On July 9th, the women were uh, in the trenches with their male compatriots of the 525th Regiment, waiting for the order to go over the top. Which, like... I feel like that's got to be the most stressful thing in the world. You're sitting in a trench that's dug out of the dirt. You hear gunfire. You hear bomb. You like you hear everything around you. And you're just waiting for someone to tell you to like run head first into it. No, thank you. However, <laughs> apparently I'm not the only one that thinks that way. Because when the order came, many of the men didn't move. And honestly... It's hard to blame them. Like the the story comes off really negative towards the men in the in the army, and I feel a lot of sympathy for them because they're tired. They're not even sure what they're fighting for anymore, and they've seen their comrades die around them. They right. are done. And honestly, like any military unit is only effective for so long in war before they're all just fucking done. As Marina Yurlova, a female Russian soldier who was also in Kate's book, said. They were not individual Russians any longer. They were just soldiers. They were not men who were going to die for their country. They were just men who were going to die. Yeah. Bleak. Bleak, 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 bleak. But the women's battalion of death, who was ready to strike and eager to prove the haters wrong, joined 75 officers and 300 other men to make the charge. Seeing the women ready to charge, some of the men had left had laughed at them calling them posers and even insulting the officers who joined them like officers don't go over the top what the fuck is this bullshit like this is crazy right. you're all a bunch of assholes but they would not be distracted or deterred when the call came the women leapt over the top of the trenches and into no man's land and a hail of german bullets Seeing women charge bravely into battle inspired the remaining troops to charge behind them or they would look like a bunch of pussies. And let's be honest, that was the whole point. <laughs> the charging Russians were able to successfully force the Germans to retreat and they were able to gain valuable territory. However, and this part I like almost couldn't quite believe. As they made their advance, the men found a stash of booze that the Germans had abandoned in their retreat and proceeded to get sloppy. Very inappropriate for our sober episode. Right. <laughs> and effectively halting the advance because they're just getting shit-faced in these, like, German trenches. And, like, look, guys, I enjoy booze as much as the next person, but there is a time and a place. And in the middle of a battle is, like, not the time or the place. The women's battalion tried to combat this by busting bottles, but the boozy side quest gave Germans enough time to regroup and push back. The women defended their gained ground until they ran out of bullets and had to retreat, losing all of the ground they gained. Jesus. Guys. And like I said, dude, I, I get it. War will fuck you up and you're so done and you can't, you just, you just can't anymore. But seriously, my God. So three members of the women's battalion were killed in the battle and 36 others were injured. However, the battle wasn't a total loss. They captured a bunch of Germans who were utterly devastated to be captured by women and had proved themselves in battle. 
One commander said that the women's detachment proved that they deserved the name of warrior in the Russian Revolutionary Army, which is like a weird compliment. Like, thanks, question mark? Right, yeah, it's They're one of those. Detachment. Is, it, is it really a compliment? <laughs> and it was. And like, even in the official report of the battle, they were praised highly for their service. Oh, but I, I just thought it was yeah. funny because, I mean, this whole thing is like they're embracing traditionally masculine traits and roles right. to like outman the men to shame them into manning up. And so there's like a lot of. Here's the thing. In our modern sensibilities, you could call that a lot of, like, toxic gender role stuff. But this is war. This is World War One. I. I fucking get it. And I cannot right. criticize any of this. No. I mean, except for being nasty to the women. But, you know, that's never cool, guys. When asked if they were afraid, one of the women responded, No, I was not afraid. None of us were afraid. We expected to die. So we had nothing to fear. Despite their effectiveness in battle, especially compared to the dudes who got drunk in the middle of it, many of the army resented the women's battalion of death, probably because their name was so much cooler than everyone else's. Like, let's be honest. Uh, this resulted in violence and death threats against the women. Jesus. It got so bad that in December of 1917, less than a year after being formed, the women's battalion of death was disbanded. They were dead in the eyes of the army yeah. and the government. <laughs> so what became of Maria, the mother of the battalion? She returned to Petrograd where the Bolsheviks tried get it, to get her on their side. She wasn't into it and they tried to execute her because that's what you do when someone tells you no thank you. You so, try to murder sounds, them. Sounds like the Bolsheviks. Uh, thankfully, she was saved from the execution by a male soldier with whom she had served in the Imperial Army all the way back in 1915. Aww. He like basically convinced the Bolsheviks like, guys, you don't want to fucking kill her. She'll murder you. <laughs> right. Or it's like, or there'll be a huge uproar and that'll yeah. be worse. Like, guys, let's let's all like put let's on our chill. big boy pants here and, you know, maybe not just murder everyone. So to avoid being murdered, Maria fled to the United States in April of 1918. Uh, while in the United States, Maria campaigned to encourage government officials, including President... This is our sober episode, and I just fucking can't, apparently. Like, that's just how I talk. That's funny. Normally, I just blame it on the booze, but this is just who I am it's as a person. <laughs> including President Woodrow Wilson to send aid to Russia, uh, who was now in the midst of a brutal civil war. Because things were not good in the Russia. Yeah. <laughs> just, and here's the thing. I get it. Like, the czar was not good. That shit needed to end. But maybe also just, like, straight up murdering everyone is not a good idea. It's like the Russian Revolution where it's like, I get monarchy bad, but also murdering everyone bad? Like, <laughs> yeah. So President Wilson was so moved by Maria's speech, because she's the world's greatest orator, that he cried and promised to do whatever he could to help. And I think the United States did maybe send some aid. I started to look into it, and then I was like, Emily, you need to just finish your research, okay? After the United States, Maria traveled to Britain, where she met King George V, uh, and the British War Office granted her 500 rubles to help her fund her trip back to Russia, because I think... She wanted to go back to Russia and, like, clean house and Help. do what yeah. she could. Yes. Because she, if if she is anything, she's a patriot. She just wants to help her country. Unfortunately, 
returning to Russia would be a fatal decision. Maria tried to organize another female battalion and then a woman's medical unit under the White Army who were fighting against the Bolsheviks in the Civil War. Uh, and those attempts failed and Maria was dubbed an enemy of the working class by the Bolsheviks who captured her, imprisoned her for four months where they interrogated her. And I always read that they interrogated her. I was like, let's be honest, it was probably more like torture. Uh, before executing her by gunfire on May 16th, 1920. Legacy. Yeah, it just ends. Yeah. She just dies and it ends. It's the saddest it's sad, thing. Yeah. That's why we have a legacy section, you guys, to combat stories like this. Maria dictated her memoirs, Yashka, My Life as, as Peasant, Exile, and Soldier, uh, which I would really love to like get my hands on, Maria was depicted in the 2015 Russian war film Battalion, and she's like depicted as a hero because she's a goddamn queen. In 2018, the New York Times published her belated obituary as part of their Overlooked project, which I know we've talked about a ton on this show, and it's amazing, and I'm very happy they're doing that. Maria and the Women's Battalion of Death are an inspiration to all women who feel the call to serve, especially in combat. They inspired more all-female battalions across Russia, and the government actually began endorsing and assembling all-female fighting groups. Every Russian female soldier who we've covered, and let's be honest, it's like its own category on this show, we do it all the time, can thank Maria and the Women's Battalion of Death for helping pave the way. And that's my story. I'm like sad but happy it was such one of, a it's cool one of those story but yeah i mean it it, it doesn't end with like maria becoming this like ultra badass and just bowling yeah. over the bolsheviks yeah as much because as we, we all know to. how that history turned out and like here's the thing i i haven't done enough reading on the russian civil war but again it's like monarchy bad but also straight up murdering everyone bad like let's not right there's no evening out that scale sorry if you can hear me rustling book pages it's i didn't so authentic. i didn't i didn't write the quotes that i'm pulling directly from the book down like emily did i'm just gonna read them from the book you know what you That's, look so authentic and scholarly and like People love I probably that, like, look. I was going to be like, you could take pages. a picture for our fans, but I probably look like shit. Oh, you don't. And I am going to take a picture. So, guys, look for this on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook if you don't follow us already. What is wrong with you? Oh, you're so cute. I'm probably not. There's probably a reason you're not showing me the picture. Well, because we're, we're in the middle of an episode <laughs> here. We're already taking a 10-minute break so I can capture your majesty. Jesus. My majesty. Oh, I actually don't look that bad. Yeah. I need to take a shower. You look cute. Look well, so bad. do I. <laughs> Let's be honest. It's too I'm, early in the morning. I'm gross. I'm right. wearing yesterday's panties. <laughs> yeah. And I stepped in pee. Yeah. That, that's the gross <laughs> one. It's a hell of a morning. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm covering Vivian Bullwinkle. Her side note next to her name was Soul Survivor. Oh, that's intense. And like I said, I didn't do the backstory. So sorry, guys. But the Pacific Theater is basically... The part of World War II that happened over in, what, China, the United States, and the Philippines. Well, not the United States. But <laughs> that's that's one of the sections in the book is the United States and the Philippines. So China, the Philippines, Malaysia, Singapore, the Dutch East Indies, Iwo Jima, and Okinawa. So it's like the women that were overseas yeah. in World War II. Because when we think of World War II, we think a lot about what was going on in Europe, Europe but there was a whole, like... 
other side. Other division yeah. happening in the Pacific. Yes. So I'm covering v- Vivian Bullwinkle. Uh, Vivian was born in Kapunda, South Australia on the 18th of December, 1915. I don't think we covered an Aussie yet. No, you covered two Aussies. I did. That's true. This is number three. But were they originally, I'm trying to like, I'm like, were they originally from Australia? Or I they... think one of them got, I think one de- of them was like, British and got deported. She was exiled to exiled, Australia. Whatever. So Vivian completed her general nursing at the age of 23 at Broken Hill and District Hospital, followed by a midwifery course uh, one year later. She began her nursing career in Hamilton, Victoria, before moving to the Jesse McPherson Hospital in Melbourne in 1940. So, tiny bit of background. Can I just say Broken Hill is the worst name for anything to do with medicine? Like, you might as well name it You Will Die Here Hospital. You Will Die Here Hospital. (laughs) Yeah, that does kind of sound like that. It's so unencouraging. Right. So, in 1941, wanting to enlist... um, Victoria volunteered as a nurse with the, like, Royal Air Force Army, whatever, um, but was rejected because she had flat feet, which would be the same reason I would get rejected from the military. Oh, my God. Yeah. She was, however, able to join the Australian Army Nursing Service and was assigned to the 213th Australian General Hospital, or the AGH. In September 1941, she sailed for Singapore. After a few weeks there uh, with the 210th, she rejoined the 13th, which was, was her original unit, in Johor Bahuru. I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing any of these names wrong. We're doing our best, you guys. Right. You know us. Um, Japanese started invading Malaya, however, in December of 1941 and began to advance southwards, winning a series of victories. And in late January of 1942, forcing the 13th AGH to evacuate Singapore. So that's where we're at. And then this is my first quote from my book. My stomach is, like, gurgling because I haven't eaten breakfast. Oh, no. <laughs> um, all right. Australian Army nurse Vivian Bullwinkle walked through the hospital ward for the last time. She fought back tears as she looked at the faces of the wounded men. It was February 12th, 1942, and Singapore was falling to the Japanese. She and the other nurses, referred to as the nursing sisters, were under orders to evacuate, but none of their patients were complaining. In fact, they were relieved that the nurses, their fellow Australians, would now be safe from the Japanese. Wait, so the nurses were leaving, but the wounded yeah, guys because they couldn't were take staying? they couldn't take the wounded with them. Oh my god! Yeah, this is why Elsiot was so important. Get those wounded guys out of there. So that was the beginning of this. That's tragic. So, in what had to be an incredibly hard move for the sixty-five nurses, um, they left the hospital and boarded a tugboat in the harbor, which took them to the Viner Brook, which is like a big ship. Okay. And it was there. It was already packed with civilians. So it was, and it was there to take the civilians and these nurses away from the fighting in Singapore. You know, back to Australia. Right was the goal. We're just um, we're we're hitting the eject button on this. We're yeah. getting the fuck out. And as they were leaving, Vivian looked back as, and saw that the city was in flames. She, <gasps> she looked to her fellow nurses, and they all had tears in their eyes. The men they had left behind at the forefronts of their minds. So the wounded men who had to be left behind were basically all Dead. on fire. Well, maybe not on fire, but they were definitely being murdered by the Japanese. Oh, my 
God. Like, yeah. you really couldn't fit them on the boat. It's better to just die on the boat, you guys. I think it's more they didn't have a way to get them out of the hot, like, you know, yeah. depending on how many there were. Oh, I my know. God. You know, the story starts off sad and just kind of continues. I feel like I was going to say this was Soul Survivor. <laughs> I don't know why I'm suddenly shocked um, that this is a bummer. The fear of the Japanese finding them was still strong as they controlled much of the air and sea of the, you know, of the land around where they were fighting. Um, the fears were very much founded when the next day they they were over by the Dutch East Indies, which I think is now Indonesia. I might have to look that up. I doesn't. I didn't. Apparently, I didn't do my research. Well, and I know in my book, the map, she includes a map of Europe. Yep, that's what I'm looking at right now. And But it's from the time, because I was like, where the fuck is Poland? Yeah. <laughs> Poland was Russia. Like I said, I think it's Indonesia. It's the islands, like, south of Singapore. But so they, they were up along the Dutch East Indies. It is Indonesia oh. now. Haha. I was like, I thought I read that somewhere. Yes. You should have just said, it's Indonesia. I should have just Even gone if it's not, it, yeah. now it's Indonesia. So they were, they were like, al- traveling along the Dutch East Indies when they spotted a black dot on the horizon. The nurses and civilians were sleeping on the deck because that's, you know. There's they, no there room. nowhere else. And as it drew nearer, they saw it was a Japanese plane. No. The plane fired into the water, then turned and left. But that meant the Japanese now had their location. No. The captain did his best to get them out of the area, but unfortunately they were found the next day by several Japanese planes this time that were not there just to scout. The first bombs went off in the water near the ship, and the soldiers tried tried to get the anti-aircraft guns up and ready. The nurses and civilians took cover as best they could, but the next bombs hit the ship. The the deck was rocked and the ship started tipping dangerously. Lifeboats began to be lowered into the water and some people decided not to wait and just jumped overboard. Oh my god. Yeah. However, once the Japanese realized that the ship was going down, they turned and began to take aim at those in the water. Are you serious? Yep. Guys, like I get this is war, but come this, on. Yeah, this no, is this is awful. this one's this is this should be labeled like how to commit a war crime. Yeah. This this story's real bad. People in life jackets that couldn't dive under the water and those in lifeboats were their main targets. Another lifeboat was smashed when the ship rolled over as it was sinking and crushed it. Vivian saw the bodies of men, women, and children floating in the sea, the sea and the debris of the ship. The debris of the ship and the non-life jacket, life jacketed corpses began to sink while others just floated away. Well, I, I mean, that's another thing. These aren't just people who are participating in the wars in no, these some are capacity. A lot of this is just these are just normal people. Yeah, and I mean, it like none of the soldiers were on that ship. It was just like just the nurses crew. and pe- no, like yeah, oh. civilians. Vivian and the other survivors started paddling to the visible shoreline, fighting the current, trying to drag them out to sea. After seven hours, holy shit. Jesus. Seven hours, Vivian finally got to solid ground. She walked on a shore and collapsed on what she would later find out was Radho Beach in ba- on Banka Island. So, I don't know where that yep, is. Nope, it's one of the islands on... The Dutch East Indies, now okay. Indonesia. On the beach, Vivian was re- reunited with 21 of her fellow Australian nurses. There were 65 total on the ship. Oh, my God. A few a few of the members of the crew and some of the civilians had also survived and made it to the beach. 
There was also a large group of British servicemen whose ship had also been destroyed. Oh, <laughs> just, that just like, happened to be there. Just like neighbors. They were on the right. other side of the islands. Like, oh my God, your ship got blown? Our oh my ship. God, ours We'll just all hang out. What a meet cute. Right. <laughs> a local man um, they saw told them what island they were on and that the island was under the control of the Japanese. Oh, no. Right. There was talk among the servicemen that they had heard that the Japanese didn't take prisoners of war. But it was still decided that the because they had women and children among them, they would go to the Japanese and do a formal surrender and hope that because they had women and children and civilians among them, that the Japanese would, you know, be like, okay, fine, we'll take you as prisoners. Oh, no. Yeah. So the next morning, First Officer Bill Sedgman of the Viner Brook decided he would go to the Japanese and lead them back to the beach to make an official surrender. The nurses stayed with the wounded on the beach um, and the British soldiers also stayed. Well, most of the civilians and the other crew went with the first officer. A few hours later, the first officer and some of the other soldiers returned sans civilians, but joined by Japanese troops. Oh, shit. They never really mentioned what happened to the civilians. Oh, it can't be good then. Um, Sedgman explained that they wanted to be their prisoners of war, but Vivian saw no emotions on the Japanese commander's face. He set a command to his soldiers, who then filled their weapons with ammunition. <gasps> And these are like old school weapons that all had bayonets attached to them yeah. too. Like, so they all filled it with ammunition and pointed it at the group. Sedgman began to protest, um, but the officers ignored him and used the bayonets to separate the servicemen and soldiers from the nurses. And the men were marched out of sight. So now it's just the nurses and the wounded on the beach, and then they took everybody else. And the Japanese know where they are, too. Yeah. Oh, no. One officer stayed with the nurses. Oh, okay. Well, A short while delightful. later, gunfire rang out in the forest, and then silence. Then the group of Japanese headed be- were heading back, laughing and cleaning their bayonets. The nurses understood what had happened as whispers of the no prisoner thing went up from the group. When the Japanese got back to the rest of the group, they ordered the women into the water, mainly using their guns and bayonets, because I'm pretty sure they didn't speak English. Yeah. Well, I, here's the thing. A guy points a bayonet at you. You just kind of right. instinctively so kind of like walk away. Pro- prodding them and pushing them into the ocean. Yeah. Um, two nurses were injured, and they were carried. They had to be carried by their comrades into the sea. Um, they had them line up in a straight line in the ocean, And as Vivian looked around at the beautiful setting, she could not believe that this was the site of a massacre. She also couldn't get over why they were doing this or what right did they have to to massacre all these people. Well, and the the Japanese are pretty notorious during World War II for being very unforgiving. I'll I'll touch on some other other things. She said nothing aloud, though she said nothing aloud and neither did her other nurses. The only sound was that of the water lapping against their thighs. Vivian thought of her mother and how she would never know what happened. And then she was calmed by the thoughts of her father and how she would soon be with him because her father was dead. Oh, Jesus. Vivian wanted to communicate these new emotions and this calm to her fellow nurses, but, you know, didn't want to say anything. So she turned and smiled at them and they returned her smile, quote, in a strange and beautiful way, end quote. Because they're all just kind of coming They've all to kind terms of like with the fact made that they're going peace to die. With it. Yeah. Well, and here's the thing. They have almost died at least... Twice. Twice now because, you know, they had to evacuate, uh, was it Singapore? Mm-hmm. And then the ship, the ship sank and, and yeah. now this. I know. It's insane. Like, I'm sure they're all just kind of like, I mean, these things come in threes. Right. <laughs> in these last moments, their matron, Irene Drummond, said to them, chin up, girls. I'm proud of you and I love you all. 
I'm gonna cry. I know. This is about where I started crying. Kelly, what are you doing? You could have picked anyone (laughs) in this book. (laughs) The peace was shattered by the roar of gunfire from the Japanese. Bullets churned the water that quickly turned red. Nurses either crumpled or were flung forward as they were hit. Vivian waited for death. She felt the blow hit her lower back and exploded and the pain exploded. She fell into the water and thought, quote, so this is what it is like to get shot and die. End quote. Then everything went black for her. It was not over for her, though, and that was not her getting shot and dying. She she awoke floating in the sea to the sound of birds, but otherwise silence, shocked to be alive. She drifted on the water in and out of consciousness and awoke later, fully alert, back on the beach, but alone. Like, no bodies or anything. She realized that the other bodies probably had to have floated away because if the Japanese had taken them, why wouldn't they have taken her body? Right. She checked her wound and it was hardly bleeding. She had been struck on in the back left hip and it had exited through her front side. It had Jeez. clearly missed anything vital, at, you know, because it, it basically well, stopped I mean, bleeding and she was fine. Yeah. Yeah. She limped into the the dense foliage off the beach and fell asleep. She awoke sometime later to a metallic click and the chatter of Japanese voices. And when she awoke or when she opened her eyes, she saw the flash of a bayonet. However, she was well concealed and the Japanese did not see her. She recognized some of the men and realized that this was the same group that had killed her friends, perhaps looking for survivors. Several hours after they had passed, she dashed out of her hiding place to a freshwater stream nearby to drink. As she was drinking, she heard someone say, quote, where have you been, nurse? End quote. What the fuck? She turned to find a young British serviceman. His name was Private Kingsley. He had been one of the wounded on the beach that saw the nurses be massacred. Because basically what they did is they killed the British servicemen, killed the nurses, and then killed the wounded. Oh, okay. so okay. He, had, he was previously already wounded from the ship crash. Yeah. And then, so he wasn't able to be taken with the rest of the servicemen to be shot. Yeah. And then they killed the nurses, and then they went back and stabbed the wounded, the wounded with their bayonets. Survived. Yeah. Being survived twice, or being stabbed twice. They stabbed him twice, and he survived. It's okay. These things come in threes. You're fine right? now. <laughs> Vivian inspected his wounds and saw, however, they were badly infected, and, they, oh. and that he would die if he did not get hospitalized. Vivian was determined to stay with him, though. This is a movie. Can we just talk about how this isn't a movie right now? I know. It really there's, should be. So there's the the one movie. Um, I can't remember the guy's name, but he was a uh, he was an American like track athlete who joined in World War Two. Mm-hmm. Uh, his ship sank and it was like him and two of his buddies got stranded in the middle of the ocean on this lifeboat for oh, like a hundred days like or that seven. sucks yeah. like a ridiculous amount of time and then one of them didn't make it and then they washed up on a shore that was occupied by japanese soldiers and they became pow's like like everything that could go wrong Went did wrong. go yeah, wrong that's but exactly how this story i is. think the movie is called um invincible or unbreakable or something hmm. like that because this guy survived Against literally everything in the world trying to kill him as hard as possible. But this is like a very similar thing to me. Like just everything imaginable is going wrong. And why isn't this a movie? Exactly. So by this point, they were obviously both very hungry. And so they decided to go to try and find a local village and ask for food. They walked along a rough trail for miles in bare feet. 
because of course and injured and yeah exactly pretty shitty um sh- once they found the edge of a village she entered and spoke to the head of the village who denied her request and suggested turning themselves into the japanese no we know what happened right. we've tried that exactly. it didn't go well she then tried talking to the co- cooking women directly who just kind of looked at her but didn't say anything in despair she went back to the jungle to kingsley as they were going to leave however they noticed um movement in the jungle and two women who were smiling from the village came out set down two bundles of food and quickly left oh shit so i'm sure it's like the town doesn't want to be seen helping helping, but apparently these women wanted to they're not going to be assholes right several days later vivian was able to return to the same spot and the women brought her food again the two of them survived for 11 days on this food um but vivian was acutely aware that Kingsley wasn't going to survive without some type of hospitalization or drugs and Vivian did not want to die alone. Yeah, I mean she's fortunate enough that she found anyone alive right, exactly. to be with and her. And I think that in what Catherine kind of says in her book is that that's kind of what made her realize that, is, you know, she has this companion and she's like I I don't want to die alone. Yeah. You know, she has that realization that you know, Kingsley is dying and you know, I'm probably going to die, too, and I don't want to die alone. Yeah. So she made the unfortunate call, um, but really the, the one that she knew she had to make, the her only hope was to turn themselves in or to try. Okay. Because you know? at least if they were, he was going to die unless he got Well, unless he got, like, treatment, which right. I think she knows that they're probably not going to treat him, but at least that way she wouldn't be alone. Yeah. I like I kind of get it because you have to do something to right. move forward. Well, and it, you know, and then it's like, well, maybe I can, you know, maybe he will be saved. You yeah. know, it's the hope. Mm-hmm. Before leaving, Vivian washed their uniforms so that the Japanese wouldn't know that they were on the beach where the massacre happened because that was definitely a war crime, and they will definitely kill any survivors. Oh yeah. So so what they're just gonna think like to that they washed up on the shore somewhere. I think that's what they're hoping. Okay. Um, they decided to go to the headquarters in Montauk, which was a few miles away. So they, again, had to walk there. God. On the way, Kinsley said, quote, if it comes to the worst, I hope they do a better job of it this time. So he's like, if they're going to kill me, I hope they actually just kill me this yeah, time. Yeah, like I'm sick of like waiting to die, not knowing what's going to happen. I'd rather just die and be done. Right. So as they were walking along, Kinsley had to split his weight between sharing it with Vivian and a cane because, you know, he was injured. Um, When they reached the headquarters, they took a brief moment to say goodbye. And I'm going to read this one directly out of the book, too, because it's cute. So, quote, I want you to know that I admire you very much, Vivian whispered to Kinsley, and I feel a great pride in having had you as a companion. Kinsley replies, I would never have made it this far if it hadn't been for you, sister. I used to I used I used to look at you and wonder what with everything that happened to you, where you got your strength from to go on. You set the example, sister. You made me determined to be like you. And I'm just going to say the sister is what they called the nurses. Yeah. So I don't remember if I said that earlier. Yeah, I think. Yeah, they were called the the sisters of something. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. So that was their goodbye. Oh, God, I hate this. Um, A car pulled up to take Kinsley away. And at that moment, Vivian saw a group of servicemen walk by. So they did. They had taken some prisoners of war, different servicemen, not the ones she knew. And this is a quote from Vivian. All these fine young men, Vivian thought, the pride of their countries overwhelmed and defeated in such a short space and time being marched off to a prison camp. Um, 
So what Vivian didn't realize is they were actually being mar- marched off to the Burma Railway. <gasps> um, oh, no. Which, if you don't know, the Burma Railway was probably the worst war crime to have ever happened. Ever. I'll read a, the little block out of Catherine's book because it succinctly sums it up. So the construction of the 257-mile Burma Railway, also known as the Death Railway, was overseen by the Japanese military, who wanted a transportation land from Thailand to Burma. The reason no one had built the railway yet, though, um, was because it was mountainous jungle area, and the heat, humidity, and jungle diseases made it nearly impossible working conditions. This didn't stop the Japanese, especially when the Allies surrendered at Singapore and gave them an entire army of slave labor. Fed starvation rations and given hand tools for their work, 60,000 allied POWs and 200,000 Asian civilians were forced to build the Burma Railway, were worked literally to death. By October 1943, when the railway was complete, approximately 100,000 of its forced labor had died. Holy shit. So it was bad. I mean, she didn't know they were being taken there. Yeah. But, you know, like... It, well, that was... let, let's just be honest. Being taken to any kind of POW camp, especially at this time, is not good. No, but it's that was awful. But that was like one the, of worst the worst of the worst. Yeah. Oh, my God. So she's seeing those men essentially be marched to their deaths. Yep. And they have no idea. And yeah. she, she had no, no idea. idea. Yeah. Oh, my God. Vivian was taken to the women's internment camp uh, where she found some of her fellow nurses that had washed up on a different beach. Oh, shit. Yeah. Which is great. I think it said there was like 20, 20 of them or so. Yeah. So basically like another one third had washed up on a different beach when the ship sank and they were in this internment I camp. would have just cried. Like seeing oh, yeah, people no. you knew, she especially was, your nurses. Like- she was so excited. They were, you know, they were crying. And of course the nurses were asking her what happened. And, you know, she, it says her smile faded, you know, because obviously, and she had to tell them that they were all dead. She went on to tell them the full tale of what happened and asked that they not tell anyone because she would be killed. And they all agreed. So no one spoke of it again. Like, it was just like, okay, this is what happened. Well, it's good that she told them because say that she didn't survive this whole ordeal. Someone needs to be able to tell what happened to these people. Right, and exactly. That, and that they, I mean, they were just straight, like, I get this is war, but they're just being straight it's not up murdered. Okay. That's yeah. not. They were surrendering and they yeah. just gunned them down. Yeah, in the ocean, far from home. Like. Right. What What an awful, like. It was. What an awful way to yes, die. Yeah. So um, several days went by and she got called to the men's hospital camp because someone was asking for her. It was Kinsley. Oh, Kinsley! And he was near death. No! I <laughs> want them to get married I was at like, the don't, end. don't get excited. No! Um, so they, you know, so they, over this. They talked and as she was talking to him, Vivian remembered a quote from Florence Nightingale that was, quote, no soldier should die alone upon foreign soil. Oh. So even though he said that she, you know... He sa- he told her, you you had better go. And she was like, no, I'm going to stay with you. So she stayed with him until he died. Well, that was a big thing, especially back in Florence Nightingale's time. And uh, I know during the American Civil War, right. to, die- to die at home was, like, very important. And so for people to die away from home was, uh, it was uh, extra traumatic. 
Right. You know, and and just in that moment that she thought of Florence Nightingale, that quote is so. Well, and that's a big part of what nurses did is they kind of stepped in for the soldier's family who couldn't be there. I mean, it was only like 20 minutes later, so it wasn't like she sat there for like six days or anything. But, But, you know, it's it's adorable. Oh, Kinsley. No. So she spent the next three days, three years, not three days. Three years in an internment camp. Um, How it, dare you give I me know, that and then take it away? <laughs> um, so it was Vivian, the other nurses, some Dutch and English women and children. Um, and really, it was like a series of internment camps that they went through because they probably moved them depending on where the offensive was. And, right. you know, um, there was really no quality of life in these internment camps. You know, it was poor quality of food, little medicine, you know, but they did what they could to keep their spirits alive. There was something in the Far East camps, which they called the vocal orchestra, which was basically a bunch of women would get together and like sing. And Aww. that became like a real big, like power, like powerful symbol of like survival and hope. And, you know, like we're still doing something kind of a thing. Right. Um. So after the war in October of 1946, Vivian traveled to Tokyo to participate in the war crimes tribunal against oh, the Japanese. So the after three years, they she got were out. liberated. Yep, they were liberated. Okay. The war ended. Yeah, they were rescued. I know, it just kind of skips over that part. Just well, I mean, I'm war. sure it was just like, oh, we're out. Okay, that's awesome. Moving on. Right, exactly. So, yeah, she went and... So, oh, it was 24 of the 65 nurses survived. Okay. So she went and participated in the war tribunal... Which is great. Yeah, I would. Right. I've like, been holding um, on to this for three fucking years. I am ready to just tell everything. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So she went up and she told about what happened and, you know, she was shaking and like, I'm sure she was partially scared and relieved and, you know, a lot of emotions. And then um, before she returned to Australia, she was she found out that the officer that had been like in charge um, killed himself in his cell, like after her testimony. Oh, the Japanese officer! Yes. Oh, you cowardly son of a bitch! Right, I, I hate that. I hate that crap. I know, but it, it's so common. I'm like, just fucking stand, you know, like. There was a there was a true crime podcast I was listening to, and uh, long story short. They got to the level of where they were able to do some more advanced DNA testing because right. technology had advanced. And they had this guy, and he was like a blip on their radar. They just kind of right. had him on their list. And uh, they asked for his DNA. He wasn't there at the time when they asked, though, because they like went to his house. And then his girlfriend shows up to the police station with a letter where the guy's basically like, I definitely did it, and I'm still deciding if I should turn myself in or kill myself. And so they go looking for him because they obviously want to get him before he, you know, kills himself. They find his abandoned car with a note saying, whoever finds my body, so sorry. But he's not there. So they go to the hospital because he OD'd and then immediately was like, I don't want to die. And so they found him alive in the hospital. I'm listening to this because, like, they draw it out. And I'm like, if this dude dies, like, I was at the- I'm going to be so angry. I was at the gym and I was like, this dude dies. I'm flipping a fucking treadmill. Like, I am not doing this right now. That's funny. I'd be pissed if I were her. Oh, yeah. And she was. And that's that's what part of what she said kept her going in the internment camps is yeah. that desire to see justice and to make sure the 
the names of all these people that you know at least the nurses because i'm sure she didn't know all the british names right but like to keep their memory alive and let people know what happened to them so perhaps one of the most interesting things maybe not interesting remarkable things is that she continued to serve in japan as a nurse until 1947 wow yeah like a lot of racism came out of world war ii and that's that's well, and who a lot knows, of people like maybe she was to. treating POWs in Japan, like it didn't go into it. So you, I don't know what she's doing in Bachan, 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 blah, blah, Bachan. Japan. <laughs> Japan. But yeah, she continued to serve in Japan until 1947. But I'm just thinking like there's so much race, like it, you had to hate your enemy to get through. That was part of what drove you. And right. like, I'm not saying racism was at, at any point acceptable, but I understand how it happened and how people hung on to it. So if I were her, I feel like there'd be a lot of trauma associated with seeing Japanese and like working around them and like just, I don't know, good for her. That must have been right. very oh, it had difficult. To be almost impossible. On a lot of levels. Yeah. Like a lot of levels. Yep. So, and, and then in 1947, she resigned as captain. So by this point, she was a captain. Oh, shit. Yeah. But she did rejoin the citizen military force in 1955. So she went back to the military. And she was there until 1970 when she retired for good this time as a lieutenant colonel. Oh. So, I mean, she she climbed the God. ranks. Um, She's amazing. Right. Right. Like, I... I can't imagine going back to that after what she had been through. Like, I probably would have shut down completely. Oh, right. Like, there's no, no way yeah. that I would have done that. Um, She did get married. I'm trying to find that because they just kind of, like, skip over it and all these. They just say she got married. I'm like, okay, who'd she get married to? But she, she got married important. to... It's not his story. Um, oh, Colonel Francis Wet. West Statham in 1977, and she did change her name to Vivian Statham. So, you know, she got married. Um, And so she spent, so after she retired, she spent 16 years as the matron at Melbourne's Fairfield Hospital and then continued there as director of nursing until 1977 when she got married. When she got married, she moved to Perth with her husband um, but was an active member of the Council of Australian War Memorial. Mo- War Memorial. This is our sober episode. And you president guys. of the Australian College of Nursing for a number of years. Wow. She returned to Banka Island and that beach in 1992 <gasps> to unveil a shrine to the nurses who had died there. Oh my God. Right. I want to go there. I know. And just we, we're cry have to. and cry. Right. And scream and cry. Right. She died from a heart attack um, at the age of 84 Damn on July man. 3rd, 2000 in Western Australia. So she kind of lived a quiet, older life. Like she got married in the 77, went back to Bonk Island in 1992. Well, I mean, she's just working, doing, quiet doing God's life. work, man. Yeah, right. So she received um, a number of medals. So All she, the medals. Um, she got the Officer of the Order of Australia, Member of the Order of the British Empire, Associate Member of the Royal Red Cross, the 1939-45 to 45 Star, which I'm assuming is like a specific World War II thing. Okay. Don't know. Didn't look into it. The Pacific Star, the War Medal, the Australian Service Medal, the Efficiency Decoration, and the Florence Nightingale Medal, which is awarded oh. by the Red Cross. 
She also, uh, in 2001, she was also um, posthumously inducted into the Victorian honor roll of women. I mean, damn straight. Right. Uh, Legacy. So she has, there is a wing of the Hollywood Private Hospital in Perth named in her honor. The Royal Australian Air Air Force runs the Vivian Bullwinkle Lodge, which is um, a care facility for older folks. Uh, Monash University in Melbourne and Eastern Health have named the chair in palliative care nursing after her. So I wonder if the stuff she did afterward was a lot of palliative care because I've noticed I noticed some a lot of the stuff named after her has to do with palliative care. Yeah. Um, and then the Northern Melbourne Institute of TAFE, T-A-F-E, redeveloped the, the old nurses quarter quarters on its campus in 2010 for residential student accommodation and named the common room after vivian bullwinkle who was the director of nursing there for many years good god vivian yeah she lived quite a life it's i feel i know it was a lot but i was just like i felt like no she was the one that stood out to me this story needed to be told and the cool thing is that that was one of the things that got her through is a story needed to be told right she's like people need to know what happened to this woman you know i survived for a reason and my reason is to you know make sure people know yeah well and i it kind of makes you think like a a ship a ship sinks and we don't recover a bunch of people and we just all assume they drown well god i mean from the point of that ship sinking to them disappearing or dying, like any myriad of things could have happened. Right. You know, and no one would have known. Yeah, Because exactly. all the other people who were uh, survivors or prisoners were not a part of that particular group and right, yeah, like, hadn't been massacred. That, like that group of like British soldiers. Like yeah. had it not been for her surviving and, you know, Kinsley surviving for a little while, like... But yeah, people would have just been like, oh, their ship blew up. And they all drowned. And they all the drowned. End. No. <laughs> That's not what happened. Yeah, they got it massacred was by the Japanese. Way worse than that. Yeah. Like, God. Yeah. Wow, what an insane story. Right. And then to go on to live like to the age of eighty four and it's it's funny. I feel like we had almost like two sides of the same coin stories because I feel like my story was really cool throughout and then it just ended with and then she died. She was murdered and it sucked. Right. And yours was like a huge bummer, but she lived to 84 and did all this cool stuff. Right, like, exactly. Like we were just like two ships in the night. <laughs> <laughs> we're like we're going one's going to go the opposite direction. Yeah. It have a little pick me up. Yeah, absolutely. Man, and you know what? These are just two stories from two of these books, and I can tell you right now, every single one is just as amazing as the ones we just told. Right. So seriously, uh, look up Catherine J. Atwood. Uh, Check out her books. Look at her Instagram. But yeah, you can find her on Instagram at Kate underscore Atwood 7, or you can find her website at www.catherineatwood.com, K-A-T-H-R-Y-N-A-T-W-O-O-D. Go check her out. Like, Google her. You can find her books. Uh, my story came from Women Heroes of World War One, 16 Remarkable Resistors, Soldiers, Spies, and Medics. And mine came from World War Heroes of World War Two, or Women Heroes of World War Two, The Pacific Theater, 15 Stories of Resistance, Rescue, Sabotage, and Survival. And then we did get another book from her. I believe that was Women Heroes of World War Two, and yep. that was a really that was really incredible too. But for this episode, we're like we're just gonna pick we're like gonna pick one, one woman. story from from a right. book and I mean, I mean you'll us. probably see these books pop up again because they were a great resource 
oh yeah i'm definitely going to be revisiting these right. books for women in the future and we're always going to give Catherine a shout out but seriously Catherine, thank you so much again for sharing these amazing books with us thank you for everything you're doing to bring these women's stories to light they need to be told and they just aren't yes please keep doing what you're doing this, speaking you're of doing, doing amazing God's work, work here. yeah right <laughs> All right. Well, special thanks to Catherine for inspiring this very special Women's History Month episode. And if you liked uh, this episode uh, and us and everything, please find us on Facebook at Whining About Herstory, Instagram at WAH Pod, Twitter at WAH underscore pod. Our website is whiningaboutherstory.com and our email is whiningaboutherstory at gmail.com. Email us that you're amazing women. If you have a book that you you think we should check out, email us that. If you you just want to talk to us email us that you know we just want to talk to people we like to interact we do that's why we have a podcast we love to chat also rate us five stars wherever you listen it is the one of the best and easiest ways that you can support us and this podcast if you want to go the extra mile you could go ahead and support us on patreon we're on there i think you just can look up whining about herstory we'll be there it's great and also like i mentioned at the beginning if through the month of March, you subscribe at the $5 level or higher, you get one of our retro logo stickers and some of our new logo stickers. Woot, woot. Just automatically. We're done. Yeah. And then also check out our social media because we have giveaways and offers on there. For example, right now we're doing our special whining about herstory glasses. Yeah. And I'll make it for you. It'll be handmade by me. Yes. Because empowered women empower women to drink out of wine glasses. Although if you're a guy, you can still enter. We'll still send it to you. Oh, absolutely. We're equal opportunity. Yeah. Men, women, both, neither. Yeah, I mean, children can have it. Just don't put wine in it. Yeah. Yeah, just like some grape juice. Yeah. Start them young. Start them young. No. Have some virgin mimosas. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Whining About Herstory. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. And have an empowered day. Bye. Bye.